Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes fellow podcasters Gerda Bladhar and Justin Gausman of the TCB cast to discuss Peter Goralnik's classic, Last Train to Memphis, The Rise of Elvis Presley. Nate, Gerda, and Justin talk about Sam and Dewey Phillips, Vernon and Gladys, Scotty and Bill, and the infamous Colonel Tom Parker, and the amazing rise of a sharecropper's son to stardom. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and tonight I've got the pleasure of being joined by the hosts of the TCB cast, one of the best maybe the best Elvis podcast on the interwebs. We've got um, Gurdip Ladar and Justin Gosman. Welcome, fellas. Hi, good Thanks. to be on. And so it's great tonight, to be here. We're going to be discussing The Last Train to Memphis, The Rise of Elvis Presley by Peter Goralnik, which is the first of a two-part biography by Goralnik, uh, who I can't get on the show yet. He says he's willing to talk about his next book, but not his last book. And this book was written 20 years ago, so I've got a feeling he's not going to... Uh, want to come on and talk about it so justin and Gardeep were kind enough to come on and and give us an in-depth discussion of uh the rise of elvis presley which uh it's an epic book and let's start talking about the book first so we're also drawing on the um the hbo documentary the searcher uh which came out last year and it's pretty heavily based on the groundlink books i would say at least in the uh general approach but justin what's the what's the place of the Goralnik biographies and Elvis historiography? Well, it came after a lot of other biographies that had come out really more in the wake of Elvis's death. Certainly there were a few that had been published before his death. Um, there was Elvis, a biography by Jerry Hopkins. There was, of course, the famous Elvis, What Happened, which was by three of his bodyguards in the Memphis Mafia. And, uh, and there was... Um, May Mann had uh, she was a journalist and she had published Elvis and the Colonel in the, in the mid seventies. But other than that, there hadn't been a lot of major 
uh, full scope biographies of Elvis's life until after he passed away. And then there was just a wide uh, array of them. You had Albert Goldman's uh, Elvis it was just simply titled Elvis in 1981. Uh, that received some very negative attention at the time. Uh, there was Priscilla Presley's uh, autobiography, Elvis and Me, in 1985. And uh, in 1985 as well, there was Elaine Dundee's Elvis and Gladys were kind of the, the main ones that had been released to the public. There, there were certainly a lot of hangers-on and stuff that were selling their stories at the time, but there had really been just a handful of substantial biographies. And then uh, there was also the 1981 film, This is Elvis, which was a, a retelling of Elvis's life story. That And the 1979 film, Elvis with Kurt Russell. So the, there were things out there that were painting the picture of Elvis's life in terms of a mythology or, or uh, just kind of uh, made for fans that were wanting to uh, live out their uh you know, the, the the experiences of, you know, having Elvis as a phenomenon again in another way. But this this uh, the Gorelnik book came at a very important time because it was trying to get away from the image of Elvis that uh, I actually read a quote where Gorelnik said he wanted to save Elvis from both his detractors and his admirers. And so he was really just trying to dig down to Elvis, the musician and the man. And Gurdip, where does the searcher fit into the Elvis historiography? Well, um, as uh, as Justin just said, we had a few documentaries back in the day, like This Is Elvis, and then we had the the films that came out while Elvis Elvis was still alive, like Elvis on Tour, and that's the way it is. But um, uh, besides that, there wasn't anything huge. There was a few biofilms, like Justin said. And The Searcher seemed to do what um, This Is Elvis wanted to do, but it did it much, much better. Um, thinking back, uh, we just uh, covered This Is Elvis on our uh, 100th episode, and that was always nostalgic for me. I always thought it was like a great film because it had a lot of clips of Elvis, kinescopes and TVs, TV clips and film clips. And I always thought it was great. But um, when I watched The Searcher, I was like, this actually delves much deeper into his music background, his influences and what he was trying to come across with his music. And just reviewing both of those films back to back, the searcher actually is, does the job much better. It actually, it, and as opposed to this is Elvis, which had reenactments and other people, um, portraying the characters like Elvis and Priscilla and Gladys and Vernon. This actually had actual narration by the real people. So I think it did a much better job. And um, I think uh, this is Elvis had a lot of nostalgia going for it. Whereas the searcher actually shows um, it really focuses in on his influences and his music and what he was trying to get across. And that's a perfect segue to the first thing I want to talk about, because Elvis Presley is a singular figure in American musical history, obviously. The king of rock and roll, maybe not the creator of the first rock and roll record, but a contender for that title. And, you know, within a couple of years of his appearance had been dubbed the king of rock and roll and was the flag bearer for, for rock and roll as a genre up until his draft into the army. And the big question is, where did Elvis come from? And so... You know, what, what to you guys were Elvis's key influences and what was the mix that made him so unique? Justin, you want to take a first stab at that? 
Yeah, well, the interesting thing that Goralnik really did in Last Train to Memphis was that he focused very heavily on the influences that Elvis was pulling from. Not only, you know, we typically hear from, uh, you know, uh, the media that Elvis's blend of rock and roll was country and rhythm and blues. So, of course, you know, you obviously have country artists like Hank Williams and Eddie Arnold. Uh, and on the uh, rhythm and blues side, you certainly have your your um, Clyde McFadders and your uh, those other African American artists that were very much heavily involved in in the rhythm and blues side. Big Mama Thornton, Laverne Baker, but there are other influences that. Goralnik really focuses in on uh, the blues musicians, um, not R&B, but actual straight blues, people like B.B. King and uh, and Muddy Waters. And then in the gospel side, you've got these gospel quartets and gospel groups that Elvis was very heavily influenced by, like the Blackwood Brothers and the Statesman Quartet. And then there's another element that I don't think has gotten as much attention over the years, but you have pop influences, uh, folks like Mario Lanza and, and the Ink Spots and Roy Hamilton and Teresa Brewer. Dean Martin. Dean Martin, absolutely. And like a lot of times these days, especially you hear, you know, accusations that Elvis was a cultural appropriator and that, and that, that basically all he was doing was a white boy singing black music, but it was more complicated than that. Wouldn't you say, Gurdip? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, we, we talk about this on our show a lot. Um, how people don't, people just think that he stole black music, got everything from black music. And that's how he became famous by, um, elevating himself and taking, a, a performers, black performers music and, you know, not giving them credit or anything. It's, it's much more complicated than that. His, his influence were R and B, but as Justin just pointed out, he had a lot of influences. I mean, you got to talk about country music, Lowell Folsom. Um, you got to talk about the gospel stuff that, uh, Justin just brought up and the pop artist and he all this all this different types of music he was soaking up growing up and that's that, that's what comes out when he when he sings and he didn't even want to sing um R&B or anything like that he was uh, uh obviously he would wanted to be a ballad singer i think uh trying to get R&B out of him was was something he didn't feel confident i don't think uh but eventually he you know uh, with Sam Phillips's help, it it came out, and he he took all these various styles and kind of blended them together and put out what you know his own style. He didn't even like um, he didn't take one specific genre. He just what he loved is what came out, and that's a blend of all the stuff that Justin just uh, brought up. I think that's a good time to introduce our first song, and this is this is a song called Harbor Lights, and this is one of a couple of songs that. Sam Phillips at Sun Records when when he first brought Elvis into the studio to try to cut something on him with Scotty Moore and Bill Black. This is the sort of stuff they were trying first. This is Harbor Lights, a song uh, Bing Crosby did, among others. Here's Elvis and the gang taking a crack at it. Same old Harbor Lights that once brought you Watch the high lights. How could I 
Elvis Presley doing Harbor Lights. And it's clear that's not quite the magic of Elvis Presley. What was going on in the studio? And I guess we need to introduce Sam Phillips and Sun Records as well and how and that whole dynamic, which I've I've discussed with Ed Ward. I think people are generally familiar with the story. You know, Elvis was working as an electrician and a trucker, and he read a newspaper article about Sam Phillips cutting a record uh, from on some guys in prison, the prison airs. And he started stalking Sam and driving past the studio all the time. And finally, one Saturday, works his nerve up to go in and cut a record. Uh, Sam's assistant, Marion Kiesker, uh, was impressed with something about it. Like, she, she couldn't quite put her finger on what it was about the boy that, that made her tell Sam Phillips about him. And... Sam Phillips couldn't actually describe what it was that made him call Elvis back a few months later and introduce him to Scotty Moore and and say, why don't you see if there's something with this kid? But it took him a while to figure that out. I mean, tell tell which one of you guys wants to tell the secret origin of Elvis and the, and the Blue Moon Boys and how they hit upon the first head. Uh, would you like to take it? Um, sure, if you want me to. Um, so... Uh, Elvis did go into um, the Memphis recording uh, studio uh, a bunch of times. It wasn't just like he came in and and did that's all right, mama, and that, you know the rest is history. He kept going back. Um, he went twice uh, before uh, Sam actually you know paid him much attention. Obviously, he he went in and sang um, uh, "My Happiness" uh, along with um, "That's When Your Heartaches Begin." But then he went again in January recorded two more cuts and then he kept coming back after that obviously he didn't record anything just to get his face out there just so that you know marion would know him and she did because she saw him come all the time and finally i guess sam was looking for uh, a, a singer for a particular song that he was that he didn't know who sang it and he thought he'd give uh that kid that kept coming by a try and you know um elvis came down and he he tried the song over and over uh, justin do you remember what song that was uh, I it was I it my it, happiness. No, no, it was a no. it was a different song. I believe it was something along the lines of "Without Love," but it wasn't the Clyde McFadder song. It yeah. was a different song called "Without Love." If I remember correctly, I would have to check on that. Yeah, and uh, Sam wasn't too impressed, but he knew there was something there. So what he did was, uh, at the same time, um, he was uh, friends with Scotty Moore, and Scotty would come down also trying to get some, trying to find a singer or somebody to back, and you know just get out of the mundane of mundaneness of his normal job get out there and finally um i guess what they used to talk to at the diner next to uh, the memphis recording service and sam brought up this kid that kept coming by and he said maybe maybe you can um maybe you could do something with him and after finally after a few weeks uh sam finally got gave him the number and he scotty called up elvis and you know he also knew bill black who lived uh i believe next door or a few doors down and all three got together at scotty's house and they started you know trying to get something out of this kid and all he sang was ballads so um scotty's told Sam, you know, there's something there, I don't know what. So finally in, um, I believe it was July, all three of them got together at, uh, with Sam at uh, Memphis Recording Studio and they um, they started singing ballads uh, like uh, Harbor Lights and Sam just, I mean, it was the same um, bland stuff that he was doing and Sam wanted something different. And during a break, because 
Elvis was getting frustrated and everybody was getting frustrated. Sam started, you know, playing around with tapes and and Elvis just with Bill Black there just started singing um That's All Right and our Arthur Big Boy Credup song and Sam was like, Whoa, whoa, what's this? And they didn't know what they were doing and that, that's pretty much where it started. Uh, Scotty joined in and and you know, the rest is pretty much history. Uh, Justin did anything to add to that? No, you pretty much wrapped it up. Although, uh, Nate, the the song is actually called "Without You," but it's a it's a different song than the uh, other acetate that he recorded called "It Wouldn't Be the Same Without You." There's another song called "Without You" that has not been discovered. The demo of the song was originally by apparently an African American artist uh, that was unknown to Sam because he wanted to have that original artist cut a proper version of it, and that's when he tried calling in Elvis since he couldn't find the original artist that that sang on the demo. Uh, yeah it's fascinating i mean and sam phillips is such a pivotal character to all this and and you know sam phillips as we've talked about on the show in the past he had recorded howlin wolf he had uh cut records on bb king he recorded uh, rocket 88 with ike turner that was released under jackie brinson's name uh at first he was he was recording stuff and and licensing it out to other record labels and then eventually he figured out you know if i'm going to be recording this stuff i should put it out on my own record label and he got with rufus thomas and put out a song called bearcat which was a takeoff of hound dog by big mama thornton that was his first hit and you know cut some discs on junior parker and others but he hadn't had a big success but he was primarily known uh, as a recorder of, of rhythm and blues, cutting records on African Americans, and so he had talked about, you know, the famous quote: "If I could, if I could find a white boy that could sing black, you know, we'd all make a million dollars." And I don't think that was what he originally thought Elvis was, but Elvis was around, and he just took a chance on him. And the thing that always struck me about "That's All Right, Mama" and the and the origin story is that it was sort of a lark and a joke and Elvis didn't take himself seriously as an R&B singer and he thought it was funny and you know there's the quote in the Guralnik book from I think it was Scotty Moore that everybody's you know they record the song it takes them a few takes to get it down they get it and they're excited but they're literally like you know that's fine but good god they're going to run us out of town you know I mean they all knew that they had broken a line that they were doing something new and none of them had any idea what the response was going to be and that's where sam's brother by another mother dewey phillips who was a very popular dj in memphis who started out uh you know with primarily an african-american audience but he had expanded it and become the most popular dj in memphis without abandoning that african-american base so his, mm -hmm. his show is called red hot and blues and He's working on the same tip of mixing white and black musical influences. And as soon as Sam has this record, he calls Dewey Phillips down to the station and is like, I want you to hear something. And, and neither one of them knew quite what to make of it. And, and, you know, Dewey goes home and stews on it all night before he calls Sam up. And it's like, I got to have a record of that. I got to play that on the radio. And, and, you know, that's kind of the first sell. And, and at that point, they realized they had to have a B-side, you know. Well, Dewey actually, Dewey plays it on the radio before they, they have a B-side. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and in fact, Elvis, at the time that it went on air, was at a local movie house, uh, and his parents had to go track him down because Dewey kept playing the record over and over because people were calling in requesting it to be played again. And so they 
asked for Elvis to be brought into the studio so that he could do an inter- so that Dewey could do an interview with Elvis. And the first question out of Dewey's mouth is, you know, where did you go to high school? And Elvis said Hume's High, which was the all white, you know, one of the all white high schools there in Memphis. And because there had been speculation as the calls were coming in that it was this R and B artist or the, or this black artist, but it was actually this, you know, nineteen uh, year old white kid. And and that blew people's minds right off the get, mm-hmm. and and so then they go back in the studio and they are again going through a similar process. And it's not until Bill Black starts fooling around and singing "Blue Moon of Kentucky" in a high pitched voice, and Elvis jumps in that once again lightning strikes. And it's such a perfect combination because you've got uh, you know a country cover of a of a blues song and that's all right, Mama, and then you've got a rocking cover of a country classic that they switch from two, four time to four, four time mm-hmm. and create something very different, put it together on the A and B side and boom, you know, if rock and roll hadn't already been born, it's definitely at least crowning at this point. I mean, you know, yeah. you've got, you've got blues, you've got country, you've got Elvis, you're damn close to rock and roll at this point. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's sort of a culmination of what had been a, years long evolutionary process of the blending of because I mean you can trace all these origins back to I mean certainly you've got artists on the countryside like Bob Wills who was pulling stuff from you know uh, R&B and then on the other side of that you have well even you know a a year later you would have Chuck Berry come out with stuff like Maybelline and you know pulling from the countryside of things and so it was just it was the perfect storm Uh, I I know that's kind of cliche but it's this perfect storm to have Elvis be the one who has this massive explosion of popularity recording what, like you said, Nate, was essentially a lark. And that's one thing that that is interesting about the Elvis story is that throughout his career, uh, some of the most interesting and and kind of linchpin moments in his life were actually not intentional uh you know later on you would you we'll get into it i'm sure later but a a song like hound dog that he covered from uh big mama thornton was actually not a cover of her version he didn't think he could do a good enough version he was doing a spoof that had already been a spoof of the big mama version by guys named uh freddie bell and the bellboys i mean so things that have been you know taken as gospel over the years that you know elvis was pulling uh, all these tracks from rhythm and blues artists and profiting off them. Well, he was primarily just doing what he loved. And then even on the songs that he was the most popular with, like Hound Dog, he wasn't even necessarily pulling from the original uh, uh, black artist. He was pulling from this group of white guys, these corny white guys that were almost sort of uh, 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 dollar store Bill Haley in the comments. Yeah, he didn't think he could do justice to that Big Mama Thornton um, uh, song because obviously he did have it in his record collection, so he wasn't about to try it. And only when he heard Freddie Bell and the Bellboys do this takeoff of it, a silly takeoff that he only performed live first. He didn't even want to record it. Uh, after being pressured by RCA and Steve Scholes, he finally you know, capitulated and said, okay, fine, I'll do a version of it. But yeah, it wasn't even something that he wanted to do. And and I, I do want to clarify one thing that while That's All Right Mama was a hit in Memphis immediately, Sun didn't have the muscle to make it a national hit. And so they, they had to begin. And Elvis had never played live. Like their first gigs, uh, his first gig is, is playing with 
in the intermission of Scotty Moore's existing band, which was a bigger combo. And, you know, Elvis went up there and does his two songs and that's all he had. You know, it's, 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 um, very reminiscent of, of some of these bedroom artists these days that come out and put out a YouTube song and have a hit. And then they're like, Oh crap. Now I have to perform live and I don't have a set. And, you know, but eventually Elvis and, and the boys just over, repeat the same two songs for encores. <laughs> yeah. Like my brother saw U two and Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1981 and they did, I will follow four times. And, and they <laughs> got through a set, but you know, Elvis and Bill and Scotty do get a set together in fairly short or within a couple of months. And then they start touring regionally. You know, they're playing around Memphis, and then they play a little bit in Arkansas. And uh, this is going to be kind of jumping ahead, but I want to cue our next song. They get a gig on the Louisiana Hayride, which is the younger, more aggressive sibling of the Grand Ole Opry. It's this based in Shreveport, Louisiana radio show. And let's hear them doing That's All Right, Mama, live on the Louisiana Hayride in 1955. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right with you. That's all right, Mama. Just a handy way to do it. That's all right. It's all right. And that was Elvis and the Blue Sky Boys doing That's All Right Mama live at the Louisiana Hayride. And, and those early live tracks. Blue Moon uh, Boys. Blue Moon Boys. Good catch. Yes. Thank you. I, just a quick thing I want to add. Those early shows, um, the person who doesn't get a lot of credit, only if you actually know, you know, what's, what you've done the research. Bill Black was big in those early shows. Um, a lot of places, Elvis was bombing, failing. People weren't into it. And only with Bill Black clowning around, ri- riding his bass, you know, cutting up for the crowd, that actually got the crowd going and got them listening to Elvis. So um, he's like the Blue Moon Boys are very, very underrated. That's like a big point of mine. They, El- the Colonel, when he came about, came around he, he pretty much thought it was just elvis and they didn't do anything i mean that's such a big misunderstanding when it comes to that that core group and how they needed each other to exceed to succeed and why elvis actually finally did shine and also you know one of the key stories in the Groundic book is the colonel seeing a show wherein bill black starts cutting up and the colonel was furious and felt yeah. that Bill Black was trying to steal Elvis's spotlight. And he was like, he vowed that would never happen again and that nobody's ever going to steal the spotlight from my yeah. boy. And, you know, and we'll get into the colonel in a bit, but that to me right there is kind of the poisoned apple. I mean, that that's telling you how the colonel is going to be separating Elvis from his closest musical allies uh, and, and the Blue Moon Boys and that's going to have consequences that, that are going to echo all the way through Elvis's career. But yeah, I'm glad to give Bill Black a shout out because his, you know, and that's the thing with Scotty Moore. Scotty Moore's not the greatest technical guitarist and he's notorious for flubbing solos on TV shows. And, and there's, you know, many audible flubs. He's sort of like George Harrison yeah. in the early days and that, you know, has, has some stumbling play, but you know, there's a point late in this book when Elvis actually, you know, tried to fire the guys and mm-hmm. played played a couple of gigs with somebody else and, and had to take him back because he was just like, you know, these guys are better than Scotty and Bill, but I just like the way they attack. I, I just like the way they attack the songs. And there's just a real raw power to that original trio 
Yeah, that. Sam Phillips said uh, Bill Black was probably one of the worst bass players, but just the way he slapped that thing, he goes, he just got this sound out of it that no one else really could. Yeah, it's it's just it's an alchemy there, and and the alchemy also of Sam Phillips and Gorelnik talks quite a bit about the magic of Sam Phillips in the studio and the way Sam could be patient and he would never, he kind of had an idea of what he wanted and what he did want was that mix. Sam was an intellectual and an ideologue and he, he was deliberately launching an attack on the color line. Like he was a Southerner and he hated segregation and Jim Crow and he wanted to use music to break it down, but he couldn't come out and say that to Elvis. He didn't want to make himself conscious. He, he didn't want to bring down, you know, the Furies if, if they were articulate and, and open about what they were doing, that would, that would trigger a big backlash and Elvis triggered a big enough backlash as it was. But Sam in the studio is absolutely integral to that, to the success of Elvis and, you know, the, the, what, dozen or so Sun Session, how many tracks did they cut on Sun? Ooh, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. 20-something? It, it's, yeah, it's in the mid-20s, I think. Yeah. And a lot and, of them didn't come out until later. Yeah, and, and but it, 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 it ends up being sort of the core of Elvis's legacy as a rocker. I mean, these, these are the recordings that, you know, virtually every authority agrees these are the greatest selfish records. And while we went on to make, I mean, lots of people love the RCA records, and 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 I think he grew um, when he when he produced himself. But that the Sun Sessions have a certain magic that that it's that raw energy that you like. We don't know what this is, but it's like coming out like this kinetic energy. One and one thing that I want to throw in there about the Sun Sessions that I think oftentimes gets dismissed uh, outright and and neglected to be talked about because everybody talks about the most powerful of the recordings, you know, Good Rockin' Tonight and uh, and Baby Let's Play House and Mystery Train and but when you look at the trajectory of Elvis's career if you actually take into consideration the other songs that he's doing, stuff like I'll Never Let You Go, Little Darlin' and Tomorrow Night and, uh, you know, the, these ballads, even the there's a slow ballad version of I'm Right, You're Left, She's Gone. And it's clear that the direction that Elvis is going to head later in his career, what is innately Elvis, is in there. But I think sometimes, and this is one thing that Gurdip and I are often talking about on on TCB Cast, is there's a push and pull between what the Colonel knew would sell to audiences, what the audiences wanted from Elvis, what the audiences expected of Elvis, and what Elvis actually wanted. And these were totally different things because later in his career, as rock and roll shifted away and and pretty much went away for a, a few years until the Beatles came around. Uh, even he was moving into the pop field and then he kind of became later in his life, he, he became this sort of uh, all American entertainer where he was doing not only pop standards and, and country stuff, but he was also doing, I mean, he was doing the spectrum, but that's all there in sun, but you don't often hear those ballads mentioned in the same breath as the other songs, because I think sometimes people think that those are weaker material and certainly the delivery is not all there yet. Elvis becomes a much better ballad singer later in his career, but 
those are certainly just as instrumental. And I have to commend Sam Phillips for allowing Elvis that freedom to experiment with that, even though it didn't succeed. And Sam certainly never intended to put any of those out. It was only later on when RCA was scraping the bottom of the barrel that those even came out. But it's, you know, it says something to Sam's creative process that he let Elvis work through that to get to the more powerful, you know, upbeat stuff. And it's also, I think, important to note that the B side of Good Rockin' Tonight, which was, you know, the Roy Brown, Winoni, Harris, R&B classic, the B side of that was I Don't Care If The Sun Don't Shine, which Elvis probably got from Dean Martin, but was a big Patty Page pop hit. So the first record is, you know, A side of blues, B side of bluegrass song redone uh, as a rocker, and the second single is an R&B song on the a side and the B side is a rocked up pop song, not a country song, a pop mm-hmm. song. And I think it's very important to include that. That's an absolutely key element to the Elvis mix. And even though his early songs only charted country, and like I said, he played Louisiana Hayride, and, and we'll talk about his audition at the Grand Ole Opry, his one gig at the Grand Ole Opry, he didn't ever quite fit comfortably in country. And I think partly it was because his pop influence, he he superseded the the country niche. He was a pop entertainer. He was bringing all of the strands of American music together and really propelling it into the future in a dramatic way. And and let's talk about the Grand Ole Opry thing though, because that was one of Sam Phillips's, you know, Sam Phillips wasn't a manager. He's barely a record label at this Mm -hmm. point and uh, totally underfinanced. And he's just absolutely bootstrapping this thing. And, And the more, records he has to print up for Elvis, the deeper in debt he gets and the harder time he has collecting uh, the payments from the distributors for this stuff. So, But but he's still functioning sort of as an advisor. Scotty Moore's the first manager for Elvis, but, but Sam Phillips is out there doing things for him, including getting him on the Grand Ole Opry. And how did that go, Gurdjieff? Not very well. So uh, I guess it was a big thing for them to go to the Grand Ole Opry and um, they performed there and um, I can't remember the gentleman who was the head there. Do you remember, Justin? I don't. Nate, do you? The head of the Grand Ole Opry? Or, yeah, um, the person who was uh, listening yeah, to them. I'm blanking. Pretty much it's, kinda... it's, it's the guy from WSJ Records um, yeah. Yeah. in Nashville, and I'm blanking on his name. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't very impressed. And, um, you know, it, they had these high hopes that, you know, they'd, they'd knock knock it out of the park and you know the 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 higher ups there weren't too impressed and scotty and bill's wife actually um came down without them knowing just to cheer them on and you know everyone was kind of uh disappointed with the results so um that was a that was a big blow during that early times when his trajectory was pretty much going up and this was that one roadblock but you know uh, you know they brushed themselves off and they they carried on but um Justin, do you remember anything else from the well, Grand Ole Opry? And that's one thing is that Elvis was bucking the system of not only the the pop and R&B field, but he was bucking the country system. He was too pop and R&B for the country and, and hillbilly field, uh, you know, so doing even Blue Moon of Kentucky. Bill Monroe was, you know, he, he was a you know, as country traditional as you can come. And there were a lot of people in the industry who were very upset that he, that Elvis had essentially done that to, 
you know, to, to turn it into something, you know, almost uh, balderizing, you know, uh, just absolutely destroying what they thought was this main st- I mean, because you listen to that original Blue Moon of Kentucky, it's a, it's a waltz. I mean, it's nothing at all like Elvis's version of it. Isn't it, isn't it funny how other people were more upset than the actual person who, who originally did it, Bill Monroe, because he actually didn't mind it at all. And in fact, did his own version of Elvis's version later on. It's mm-hmm. funny how all these other people get more upset than the originator. Yeah, that was classic. And I didn't know that until I read the Garanic book. And and I think it shows you Bill Monroe's shrewdness and that he knew when he heard Elvis that something new and something big was coming along. And I didn't try to fight it. And, you know, Elvis... Mm-hmm. In his early years, he's, he starts doing more and more gigs, doing the Louisiana Hayride. He does tours with Hank Snow and and uh, opens up for Slim Whitman and the Leuven brothers and others, the Carter sisters. And, and you know, the Leuvens, Ira Leuven in particular, violently reacted against Elvis. And, and you know, uh, even though Elvis was a huge Leuven brothers fan, pretty much killed their chances of ever being covered by Elvis by basically attacking Elvis backstage when Elvis was doing gospel numbers. And Ira was just furious that, you know, why don't you do that out in the public instead of that trash you're doing, you know? And, and it's also telling in the book, I think it might've been Scotty talking about how no country act could follow them, that they would, if there were, and that, that that the women would just react so hysterically to Elvis once once he got his confidence, it started taking on these riotous, you know, aspects, and nobody could follow Elvis. Uh, I mean, which isn't you know surprising. He's one of the great entertainers of all time. But even as a, as an apprentice, uh, and occasionally he would get cut by one of these acts. But most of the time, he was blowing people off the stage, and the country bands uh, resented it. You know, and mm-hmm. and it was it was a very uncomfortable mix. And Elvis's interaction with country throughout his career is going to be an uncomfortable mix. I mean, he's southern, he's beloved by country fans, but he's never a mainstay on country radio. He never be, he never went back to the Grand Ole Opry, and kind of killed the Louisiana Hayride. Um, and one thing we didn't talk about was his actual performances. Like he could sing in the studio uh, all well good. And Sam, um, Sam Phillips was surprised when he actually saw him live that he just started shaking. <laughs> and, and that's one thing that no one really did back then. I mean, some of the R&B artists probably did, but I mean, people would go out, sing their song, you know, standing there and singing and, you know, taking a, take a bow and go. But Elvis started moving around. And I guess the way they had these, their pants, uh, I think Scotty was saying that the way they were pleated, that you just move a little, but you know, the, the the pants would move way more than you actually were, and that that was another big thing that you know got his live shows going and how the girls started reacting. It's just he started dancing and wiggling, and that's pretty much what what sealed the deal for the girls screaming for him. And, and go ahead, oh, sorry, so, sorry, Nate. I, I was just going to say that that's one thing that attracted Colonel Parker uh, to Elvis. You know, he, he there's a, a point in the story that I and I'm sure you'll want to probably talk about Bob Neal, Nate. But the the thing that stuck out to me on this read through of Last Train to Memphis for the show was specifically not the the moment that Elvis meets with the Colonel, but the first time the Colonel sees Elvis, and it's actually while Elvis is on uh, a Hank Snow tour and. And, you know, he's just seeing things go crazy. And Parker is just fascinated by Elvis and knows that that he's going to be big. 
Absolutely. And uh, Steph tells me it was Jim Denny was the Opry manager uh, at, at the time when, when Elvis played there. He was with mm. uh, the WSM radio. And But it's time to queue up another song, and this segues to the next part. This is actually not by Elvis. This is the original demo of Heartbreak Hotel. This is a guy named Glenn Reeves uh, who, who cut the demo. And let's hear what it – this is the, the version Elvis heard. Let's, let's hear what Elvis heard. I found a new place to dwell Down at the end of Lonely Street Heartbreak Hotel And I'm so, so lonely, baby Well, so lonely Well, I'm so lonely I could die Well, hello, it's always crowded You still can find some room For broken-hearted lovers to and that was Glenn Reeves' original demo of Heartbreak Hotel, which is a totally weird song. And I, and I, you know, growing up on Heartbreak Hotel, I always thought of it as a rock and roll classic, and it's got the big stop time breaks, and you can see in your mind's eye Elvis uh, cutting cutting loose on stage. But when you actually listen to it and pay attention, it is a really strange song. It's slow, it's morbid, and nobody wanted Elvis uh, to cut this. RCA. Um, was very unhappy with this, but let's let's talk a little bit about this transition. We brought up the Colonel, and Colonel Tom Parker comes in at a point when Elvis has a manager now, a guy named Bob Neal, who's a local DJ, who just starts helping him out when Scotty's kind of overwhelmed, and eventually, uh, as Elvis grows, Bob Neal becomes his full-time manager, and it's Bob Neal's full-time job, and one of the gigs he gets him is touring with Hank Snow, who's being managed by Colonel Tom Parker. And Parker had managed Eddie Arnold before, got Eddie Arnold all the way to the top. Eddie Arnold was a huge superstar, sort of a 40s Glenn Campbell. Like, he was a pop country singer decades before that was a thing, and, and was enormous, but Eddie Arnold fired the Colonel. And the Colonel hooked up with Hank Snow, who was very big in country, but didn't have that pop aspect. You're never going to get Hank Snow to be a pop superstar, even though he's a very successful country artist. And so the Colonel presumably was looking for something big, and he knew it when he found it in Elvis, and worms his way in there. Tell us a little bit about how the Colonel took control of the SS Elvis, Justin. Well, essentially what it started out with was a partnership between Parker and, and Bob Neal where they were uh, – Parker was more or less just putting the tours together and, and marketing them and doing promotions because that's what Parker did best and that's what he was known for. He was an old carny going way, way back and – eventually because he had these connections with uh with the record labels with uh, distribution with the publishing companies uh with hollywood parker that he had made when he was managing eddie arnold and turning eddie arnold into a big star uh, he just kind of slowly started pushing bob neal out of the de decision making for Elvis's career and that like you had mentioned earlier it happened throughout Elvis's career where where Parker would kind of slowly slide the people that were close to Elvis at the at, you know at different points in his life away from him uh and and really take them. And, and isolate him not necessarily from a social sense but isolate him from a business sense where he was and and elvis's dream really honestly was to be a movie star and that was what drew him to colonel parker he knew that 
Parker had gotten uh, Eddie Arnold in some movies, and he knew that Parker had Hollywood connections. And Elvis is, you know, for as much as Elvis is, you know, today known, you know, uh, you know, hopefully you would know him more for his music, and, and he that would be his legacy. But he became a massive box office success because Parker got him uh, some screen tests with Hal Wallace and got him in the pictures, as they say. Um, which I mean goes into a whole thing in, in the latter half of his life, but yeah, and and the the segue from Sam Phillips and Sun Records to Parker and RCA, Parker had to cut a deal. To Sam Phillips wanted thirty five thousand dollars for Elvis, which was basically enough money to get Sun Records out of Hawk and get him caught up on all, yeah. yeah, get him all out of their debts to pay off all the various partners that he had had. Not only had. that, but um, like you brought up la- earlier, um, lawsuits because of Bearcat, and they were being sued by um, by the publishers of Hound Dog. Yeah, and uh, Don Roby from Houston, who was a serious uh, gangster, and yeah. and uh, you know they had been ha- having a go around in court for quite a while, and so Sam was able to get all that out of the way. Plus, he had you know Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash on deck, and you know other people are going to come his way, like Jerry Lee Lewis, and he's he wants to try other things and 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 push these other artists. So this money gives Son that opportunity. But the way the Colonel negotiated the deal, he kind of had to land the RCA deal and order to get his management deal and it barely came together it was very close but he did pull it off and and he signs Elvis to the one of the biggest record labels in the country signs him to Hill and Range the enormous music publishing concern and uh cuts deals to get him on the Dorsey Brothers TV shows and Milton Berle and gets him these screen tests in Hollywood so it's this trifecta of major label TV shows and movies that the Colonel rapidly puts together. And you got to credit the Colonel. I mean, he definitely broke Elvis nationally, but do you think somebody else could have done that if the, if Colonel Tom Parker hadn't come along at the time, I think Colonel was probably the best for Elvis. Cause I don't know if anyone else could have got Elvis to those heights as quick as he did because of all his connections. It's just that later on, um, they were kind of complacent and it was just all about getting as much money as they could with no foresight to what would happen if tastes change. Um, but in the fifties, I think, um, I think they needed each other. Uh, um, unless you have a different thought, just no, absolutely. And the thing that, I think is important to know about Colonel Parker. And the the interesting thing about Peter Goralnik's writing is that he doesn't actually tell us much about Colonel Parker in the first book, uh, but he really dives into Colonel Parker's backstory and where he came from in the second volume, Careless Love. But uh, at the point that Elvis is on the rise, Parker, having been you know, in the carnival scene as a young man, uh, having done all the connections with Eddie Arnold, uh, the thing that Parker did best that has had repercussions throughout pop culture to today on artists that don't even have any connections with Elvis is the idea of merchandising a musical artist because Parker, he, he obviously, you know, got Elvis on TV and got him in the movies and got him on the records. But the thing that's, you can't leave out is, and, and this is the, the one thing that, uh, that Peter Goralnik, uh, he, he, 
he's trying to rescue Elvis and, and put the emphasis back on Elvis's music because it had been lost for so long. But the fact that Parker came up with this idea, this concept of uh, essentially a musician as a brand uh, before, you know, brand was even really used in, in the sense that we know it today um, it is absolutely fascinating. And it's really only someone that Colonel Parker could have come up with, you know, with his background, with his expertise, the connections that he had and the mentality, the, the type of person that he was, because, I mean, there are stories of him, you know, selling I love Elvis buttons and I hate Elvis buttons to, to, you know, outside Elvis concerts, you know, and, and that's the kind of guy that he was. And there were board games and there were dolls and there were teddy bears and there were, I mean, just anything that you can think that you can slap Elvis's face on. Yeah, there had certainly been some merchandise pushed before for, you know, maybe some artists occasionally. Obviously, people could could get photographs and things like that. Um but to actually get essentially uh, knickknacks of an artist is a thing that only a Carney could have come up with. So I, I think definitely that, you know, Colonel Parker was the guy and, and could have only been the guy. And Gromick has a great comparison of Sam Phillips and the Colonel in the book where he says um, there were very strong independent men with two very different visions of life. Sam's vision embraced the sweep of history, very consciously conjured up the agrarian hero as the focus of the democratic dream. The colonel's vision, on the other hand, denied history. It centered on the here and now, focusing on survival by wit and instinct in a universe that was indifferent at best. And I think that's just brilliant writing and really sums up the, the difference in visions. You know, Sam Phillips is thinking big picture and thinking about cultural impact and very much sees himself as a producer of art. And the colonel is sees this as a business and sees mm -hmm. this as a money-making opportunity. And I think because they had that catalog of songs that they had recorded at Sun, and because Elvis had done his apprenticeship with Sam and, and learned who he was and gotten confident in his vision, that it was the perfect time for Elvis to go to RCA. And the fascinating thing about it is, you know, Steve Scholl signs him and is nominally the producer, sends him to Nashville first with Chet Atkins, who is one of the great producers of country and western of all time, but never really clicked with Elvis. And, and Chet, from the beginning, takes this sort of hands-off approach. And Elvis basically runs the sessions mm -hmm. and, and does Heartbreak Hotel, which nobody wanted him to do. Nobody liked that. It wasn't on Hill and Range. Uh, initially, it was a very weird song. And then he's cutting things like, money honey and uh, you know r&b sides and nobody's quite sure at first if they've done the right thing you know steve Scholz even called sam phillips when carl perkins blue suede shoes starts running up the charts it's like i think i signed the wrong guy you know <laughs> and 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 but they stick with it and the colonel gets him on tv he does uh, six appearances on the Dorsey Brothers TV show, and at first, it's pretty rough. Uh, there's, you know, I think it's the second or third appearance. He does a pretty bad version of Heartbreak Hotel with the Dorsey Brothers band trying to back mm -hmm. him up, in a totally arrhythmic way. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's it's very awkward. But by that sixth appearance, Elvis is burning down the house. He's master television. He's doing Heartbreak Hotel with his band, his way, and just killing. And then they do Milton Berle, and it blows up. I mean, Elvis is a star. Heartbreak Hotel takes a while to break, but then it breaks huge. A number one um, pop, number one country, I think number two or three R&B. 
and then the backlash comes in. And and this is, I think, the first sign that the colonel is going to be a mixed blessing because Steve Allen books him and humiliates Elvis. I mean, sets out to humiliate Elvis, has Elvis sing Hound Dog in a tuxedo to a hound dog. What's your take on the Steve Allen experience? Um, I actually don't. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, and Elvis himself felt like he was humiliated by Steve Allen, but um, just in talking with Justin and just reading up on it, I think Steve Allen was a comedy show, and I don't think he was trying to humiliate Elvis. I think he was just trying to, you know, show a different side to Elvis. Like be- previous to the Steve Allen show, he was on um, the Melton Burrow and it was the second appearance where he did that um, raunchy version of Hound Dog. So there was a lot of um, criticism on Elvis, how he was corrupting the youth and the way he was dancing, um, you know, it led to juvenile delinquency. And I think Steve Allen just kind of wanted to show a comedy side to Elvis. And I don't think there was nothing malicious about it because he's had other rock and roll um, artists like Jerry Lee Lewis on the show. And, you know, he, he cut up with him too, throwing chairs and what have you. And I, I don't think he was making fun of him. I think it was like a comedy show. Plus they had another, uh, they had something called Ranger Roundup where it was another comedy segment segment with Andy Griffith. Um, I don't know, Justin, what do you think of that? Yeah, and, and that's one thing, too, that, uh, you know, uh, Gorelnik goes into in the book that Elvis, you know, uh, may have felt humiliated by that. But the thing that you have to remember is that the way that I've compared the Steve Allen appearance to before is it's like a modern artist appearing on SNL. Like, that's the kind of comedy uh, that you should be viewing that. That's the sort of lens that you should be viewing the Steve Allen show through because he's not trying to make a, a statement uh, at all he's trying to play things for comedy to disarm people um you know he knows and he's aware of the context of that elvis was just on the milton Pearl show and you know there's all this backlash and he's trying to he's trying to put the country at ease by you know poking fun at it in the same way that someone on snl today would put, make fun of uh you know whatever contemporary events are you know and they'd get people in costume and they you know their guest hosts are often in you know skits with the performers and that's exactly what Steve Allen is doing yeah, a series on of show. skits and then he goes on Ed Sullivan and Ed Sullivan's response to all of the hullabaloo is to film Elvis from the waist up what do you think of that well that was actually only from the, the his last appearance the first two appearances I mean it was full shots um I can't remember exactly why he thought he would change it. I mean, Elvis wasn't even moving very much in that last show at all. He was kind of just standing there and, you know, shaking a little, but it wasn't nothing compared to his first or second appearance where I think it was the second one where he's really like, he's, 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 he's doing that um, stripper style dancing on it. And, I think it was just because he didn't want any of that and Elvis kind of flipped it on him and he really didn't move much at all in that third appearance, (laughs) did he, Justin? No, and he went out of his way to also perform a gospel number, Peace in the Valley, on that last Sullivan show. And Ed Sullivan made a point of saying, you know, hey folks, uh, Elvis is a very fine young boy and, you know, was also trying to do as much as he could to, you know, show people that Elvis was not you know, this evil menace that was going to cause all this juvenile delinquency. And at the same time that Elvis is breaking big nationally through TV, the Hollywood side is 
the mm-hmm. gears are turning and and he gets a role in a movie it's not originally going to be called Love Me Tender, but as Elvis's star ascends during the course of filming, they change it, and it becomes Love Me Tender. And it's not—I mean, it was definitely not planned to be Elvis's first, you know, to break Elvis. Mm-hmm. It's not an Elvis vehicle. It's—it's it's a movie with Elvis in a in a secondary role that they elevated. Uh, because of his big success, and he does some music in there. Love Me Tender is a is a rewrite of a Civil War song, and so yeah. talk about that. What 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 went on with the the music and and the making of Love Me Tender? Yeah, so in in the making of Love Me Tender, the the song itself was a rewrite of an old Civil War era song called Ora Lee. But the four songs that Elvis performs in that were essentially tacked on. And you can even tell in the way that the film is structured that there's really not a place. It's not structured like a traditional musical. It's very much your your standard old B-movie type Western, kind of a dashing lead in uh, uh, what, what was his name? Richard... Um, Richard Egan. Uh, Richard Egan, yeah. And Elvis is just kind of playing the younger brother character, and they just happen to squeeze in a couple songs that he sings uh, on the porch, and then there's two that are even further tacked on at this sort of community gathering, Poor Boy and Let Me, and they're kind of subpar uh, you know, compared to the rest of the stuff that Elvis was cutting at the time, um, with the exception of of "Love Me Tender," and "We're Gonna Move" is is a little better, um, but the other two are just kind of kind of middle of the road country style songs. But Elvis got the publishing on. Those. I don't mind, poor boy. <laughs> I mean, we like them, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, so Elvis gets songwriting co-credit on all four of those songs because the way that Hill and Range, the publishing company, was set up at the time uh, that that Parker had had got with um, uh, it was the the Aberbox, I believe, that owned the company and the representative Gene that he was Julian, yeah. And so the way that it actually worked was that they had a, a, a kind of a portfolio of songs that were under the banner of Elvis Presley music, and Elvis would get royalties whenever uh, he cut one of those songs, and he would potentially get more royalties if he was a co-songwriter. And this was really the most notable time that that happened, with the exception of a couple of Otis Blackwell songs, Don't Be Cruel and All Shook Up, were, were I think the two that he also got co-songwriting credit on. But the song is actually credited to the wife of the actual songwriter, Ken Darby, who was the music producer on that film. I, I don't remember his exact title, but he was very upset that Elvis was getting you know co-songwriting credit. And and honestly, I don't think Elvis really cared all that much. Uh, Elvis had this sort of innate passivity about him when it came to the business side of things. And Colonel Parker definitely tried to gear things as much as possible towards uh, whatever would be most financially beneficial towards him and Elvis. And publishing was the most lucrative uh, slice of the pie. So from a business standpoint, of course, the Colonel is going to zero in on publishing. But that ultimately is a big factor in Elvis's undoing in the sixties. And when you guys come back to talk about the second book, we'll cover that, but already these seeds are being planted and, and love me tender is kind of uh, a foreshadowing for songs like now or never that are going to come out in the sixties and take Elvis further and further away from his rock and roll roots. But 
pretty quickly, you know, he, he starts doing Hal Wallace movies with Loving You and King Creole, and he also does an, another movie, Jailhouse Rock. And Lieber and Stoller, who wrote the song Hound Dog and hadn't been impressed with Elvis's version, they, they, they thought it was recognized for what it was, which was a bowdlerization of the Big Mama Thornton original, and changed the lyrics in such a way that it don't make any sense. I mean, the song is about a guy who's hitting on a woman, not because he's attracted to her, but because he wants a hot meal and a place to sleep, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, you ain't nothing but a hound dog coming around my door looking for a, for a handout. And, and Elvis changes it, or Freddie Bell and the Bellboys change it in such a way that it basically makes no sense. Uh, and... It's literally about a dog. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it makes musical sense, and it's great. But Lieber and Stoller get drawn into the Hill and Range thing, and for a brief time, Lieber and Stoller are kind of the A&R director for Elvis Presley, and it works brilliantly on Jailhouse Rock. Talk about that partnership. Gurdip, you've talked before on TCB Cast about how kind of their first meeting was very – and uh, I mean, they were they were anticipating it to be, you know, something where where they were going to come in and he was just going to be this, you know, hillbilly and uh, they weren't going to be impressed with him. But then they found out that he was just as, you know, much in love with rhythm and blues. They were kind of in the way they were. They didn't think anyone knew about R&B and blues music as much as them. And they were so shocked by his knowledge. Like he seemed to know every song that ever came out in the 50s or even 40s like they weren't impressed with his like uh nate says they weren't impressed with the hound dog but they were also not impressed with uh their song love me that was originally by willie and ruth so you know they had these you know negative connotations about elvis but when they met him they were kind of blown away and together they started you know they started uh, creating some great music and the classic jailhouse rock number which you know, Elvis basically couldn't dance. He moved great on stage, and there was. Uh, it, t- it took a choreographer who was smart enough to realize, "Whoa, I can't teach this guy a regular dance routine." I think it was what Alex I Romeo, I believe, was the name yeah. of the gentleman. And and but he saw Elvis perform and realized what I can do is adapt Elvis's moves into a dance routine, and it produces the classic Jailhouse Rock, um, which, for my money, is the best Elvis movie ever. Uh, it's got. Elvis is committed to the acting. You're going to get some uh, blowback from Justin because he doesn't think it's the best. (laughs) Well, it's a big, big country. There's room for all kinds of opinions. But for me, that's (laughs) that's Elvis when he cares about acting and he's excited to be in front of the camera. He's really trying. It's got Libra and Stoller doing the music. And, you know, it's just great. There there are other Elvis movies that are fun. But to me, Jailhouse Rock is absolute magic. Now, see, my take, my my hot take, as it's been, um, is – uh, King Creole is is definitely a much stronger film uh, narratively, cinema, uh, in terms of cinematography, uh, in in terms of script structure. Jailhouse Rock has a lot of weird moments. The cinematography is not really great. Uh, the plot. I have problems with the there's no question that the music is great and there's no question that Elvis is invested in it. The character is not really nice. I don't really Vince Everett's not a very likable character. Uh, And and the hot take that I've had before on TCP cast and in some of my earlier projects that were Elvis related that I've done is that I think Jailhouse Rock has actually been overrated over the years because it was accepted and appreciated as 
a showcase for what people wanted Elvis to be and what they wanted him to reflect in the sort of rebelliousness of the teenagers of the era. Um, but that wasn't necessarily a reflection of who Elvis himself was creatively, artistically, personally. And I think, and, and also this goes back to the, the sort of king of rock and roll uh, phrase, which I, I, I found a, uh, an interview piece with the Boston Globe where P Peter Garolnik actually said where he doesn't feel that Elvis should really be called the king of rock and roll either the art artists shouldn't be you know raised you know over each other but to me i feel like jailhouse rock has almost shoehorned elvis into an image that he could never quite live up to at any point later on in his life and he was fighting that pretty much until the day he died this expectation of what he was and should be I think that's totally fair assessment. And let's hear a song from King Creole that you mentioned. And this is one I picked because I just find it totally weird. This is Crawfish, which to me sounds like something the B-52s could have been doing in the late 70s. This is Elvis Presley doing Crawfish from the King Creole soundtrack. Crawfish, crawfish. I went to the bayou just last night. There was no the stars were bright Put a big long hook On a big long pole And I pulled Mr. Crawfish Out of his hole Crawfish Crawfish And that was Elvis Presley doing Crawfish from the King Creole soundtrack Which is a totally weird song Lieber and Stoller wrote most of the songs On that soundtrack but not that one And, and I just kind of picked it Because it's sort of another sign of things to come it's an odd song and that whole soundtrack you know i think it was lieber that that trashed the song king creole which i actually think is a great song um but lieber and stoller weren't too happy with it and there's a number of attempts to sort of it's set in new orleans so there's this sort of uncomfortable mashing of elvis with with um trad jazz you know new orleans style mm -hmm. Louis armstrong style jazz it doesn't quite gel but um, overall, the movie's a success and, and one of his best, you know, definitely one of his best acting performances. But it is the last time he works with Lieber and Stoller. And, and one, which one of you wants to talk about the breakup between Elvis and Lieber and Stoller? Or more accurately, the breakup between Tom Parker and Lieber and Stoller? Yeah, it was more like Tom Parker and Lieber and Stoller where he wouldn't let them near Elvis. Essentially what Lieber and Stoller started, you know, talk, in talking with Elvis – they would uh, uh, pre present songs directly to Elvis, like Don't, um, but and Colonel hated that. He wanted them to go through the proper Hill and Range um, channels, uh, acquire the, the publishing and some of the co-writing before it got to Elvis, before he fall, fell in love with the song. So, you know, they already had a strike with that. And then they started... Uh, uh, getting other people to start um uh getting elvis to to look at certain projects um they, they i think i think they brought it to the Aberbacks that uh, i think it was a, a a film that they wanted they thought would be perfect for elvis and you know the tom parker hated that as well so all these things built up where you know Tom was like, uh, these guys, you know, they have to be separated from Elvis or I, I can uh, sign a contract with them and they can exclusively produce for Elvis. And uh, I guess um, I think it was Lieber that was sick um, in New York when they needed um, them for an Elvis session. And uh, Parker wanted him 
there at, at the at the sessions and told him to take a plane and Lieber had had, the, had a walking pneumonia at the time and, and he said you know he will try to get there and then uh, Parker uh, mentioned that he sent him a contract and uh, to look over it and sign it and send it back to them and essentially Lieber opened it and it was a blank piece of paper with uh, Parker's signature at the bottom and a line for them to sign and when he asked Parker oh you know this must be some kind of mistake uh, uh, Parker said well don't worry we'll fill out all the details later after you sign so that pretty much ended their relationship i mean they're not going to sign a blank piece of paper and hand it to the colonel so that essentially ended their relationship with elvis much to his dismay and i don't know if elvis was if anybody ever reached out to elvis or got a quote on him what he thought about them no longer being available to him but um couldn't have been great yeah, and, and you know, Hill and Range has Otis Blackwell, who contributes a, no, a number of, of great songs, and they later bring in uh, Pomus and Schumann, who, who write some great songs for him in the 60s, but the poor material they present him with increasingly becomes a problem in the 60s, and then we don't have time to cover it, but there's two big disasters that end of the book, and the first is Elvis gets drafted. You know, this is peacetime. I mean, it's the Cold War, and the draft's still going on as a holdover from the Korean War, but there was really no pressing reason Elvis had to be drafted. Somebody on the Memphis draft board made a point of drafting Elvis, and the colonel's decision was, we're going to go with this. We're not going to fight this. We're not going to try to get some kind of deal where he's in the USO or singing, and it ends up Elvis spends two years in Germany without recording, partly because the colonel can't travel, and he's just on the shelf and in the army. And worst of all, his mother passes away, um, mm-hmm. at a, you know, in her early forties from a kidney disease, I believe. And Elvis never really recovers. Any final thoughts on where um, we end Elvis? I just, I just wanted year? to point out, I was having a conversation with someone separately about this. Um, when Elvis was drafted, he was probably at his peak popularity because everybody knew who Elvis was. It's similar to say, if Michael Jackson, during his thriller fame was all of a sudden drafted and just put on the shelf. Isn't like just thinking about in those terms, it just seems bizarre. Doesn't it? Like someone who's that popular. And then all of a sudden they're just gone for two years for no real reason at all. I mean, there was no war going on yet. He's drafted and Colonel kind of said, let's not fight it. Let's do it. Uh, We, he thought, you know, putting Elvis on ice while all this, uh, uh, controversy with rock and roll was building. Um, you know, get out of the limelight for two years and then come back with maybe a different style. Who knows? But I don't know. What do you think, uh, Justin? Well, I I don't want to take too much time, but I just wanted to throw in one sentence uh, or two uh, more about what you had mentioned, Nate, without providing context uh, in terms of why Colonel Parker couldn't leave. And that, uh, like when we get to Careless Love, if we come back in the future, uh, we'll we'll get into, that would be wonderful. Um, But when we get to that, uh, you know, that plays a huge factor in why he wasn't able, Elvis wasn't able to tour internationally later in his life. But the reason why some people don't know that Colonel Parker was not able to travel overseas was because he was an illegal immigrant. And and that becomes a big hamper uh, for Elvis's ambitions to tour the world and play Britain and Japan and so many other places. One last question before we wrap. I, I, apologies to Steph for keeping her up late. But do you think he ever recovered emotionally from the death of Gladys Presley? Ooh. 
yeah that's <laughs> i mean do you ever uh do you ever really recover from the loss of a parent especially at that young of an age uh, i don't think i don't think anyone could or anyone would and that's especially one how close they were together um, yeah i mean he was she was the one person that she he could talk about anything and then that was pretty much taken away so um it, it is tough when you lose a parent but considering how close they were uh how much they you know talked and how how much they worked together as opposed to when vernon was either working or he got sent away to prison it was just them two always forever to get together and when uh when she, you know she passed away it was like a whole piece of him went missing with her so um it, it i i mean reading um grandma Gorelnik's second book he, he always brings up his mother whenever he's talking to somebody new like um larry geller when he starts getting into the spirituality he's always bringing up his mother how you know she would have liked this or she would have liked that so i I think he never recovered fully ever Mm -hmm. and and one last quick thing uh to to kind of bookend that is that's the one thing that with was so great about last train in memphis was that it really focused in on elvis as a human being and what the repercussions of these types of life moments these day-to-day things had on you know this very young man uh from the, this very impoverished background because uh, let's face it, a lot of people just saw Elvis as this icon in a jumpsuit at that point. And uh, Peter Gronick did a fantastic job of pulling uh, the human being back out. Um, and so that's why I love this book. I've read it so many times. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Justin Gausman and Gurdip Ladar of the TCB cast. Highly recommended if you're looking for an Elvis podcast. That's a TCB cast. Uh, enjoy it regularly. And I definitely will have you guys come back next season and we'll wrap up Careless Love and talk about uh, – we've talked about the rise of Elvis and there's a long way to go down. And we'll talk about the fall of Elvis next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Stephen Blush to discuss American hardcore and the 1980s punk underground. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Last Train to Memphis, The Rise of Elvis Presley, is published by Back Bay Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letterrollpodcast.com.